Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the, and give you praise and glory uh, for your work. We thank you that you have filled our lives with um, so many blessings. And I do want to take some time this morning to thank you for that because um, just as I was listening to the radio this morning, I just, people were talking about how to cope and, and how depressing the year was. And, um, and I just kind of would like to thank you for what you've also given us, that you've given us um, homes uh, that have kept us warm and protected. You've given us people that we can love and friends to enjoy. You've given us places to work and serve and, and, um, and uh, contribute. You've given us a, an incredibly beautiful green world that's just starting to bud again at the, the turning the seasons and blue skies. We thank you for the simple pleasures of just uh, of coffee in the morning and, uh, and quiet in the evening. And we thank you for the history you've given us of people we can of shoulders we stand on and people we can follow. Uh, and Father, we thank you for even in times of anxiety and worry and times when we were concerned about pe uh, people we love who are ill with um, all kinds of uh, diseases and, uh, and broken bodies that you have still given us peace. So we thank you for that, Father. We uh, thank you that um, uh, you have also blessed us and that your promise to never leave us has always been true and has always been there. And so, Father, we are asking that you make our homes even sweeter, that our friends even more precious to us, that we thank you and that you rest, that you rob death of its sting, that you rob sin of its power, and, um, and you bring healings to our broken souls. As we trust you, and as we look to you, and as we, especially this week, as we remember the sacrifice and also the victory, and remember that pivotal moment in history that uh, the ministry continues on and on and on that you, have, um, that you have taken upon yourself. And so, Father, we give ourselves now to you and know that you are on our side and know that uh, we can trust you. And so, Father, we give you the time this morning as we look into your scriptures, in the name of Jesus, amen. We are, uh, this is Holy Week, like Kendra mentioned, and, uh, but we are going to continue on in Hebrews, because the theme of Hebrews fits very well with the Holy Week and the events of Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter. Uh, we are in, uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, brought a, uh, this, the author of Hebrews seems to love this word once and for all, and he uses it several times in this whole next section, so I thought this would be a good title, and we'll be picking it up the week after Easter as well, and uh, we'll just be looking at the first 15 verses of chapter 9. Uh, this is a, a photograph of uh, Central Expressway in Dallas. This is the way I remember it. Uh, Central Expressway was uh, the highway, the one north and south artery that would take you into downtown Dallas. And it was the only way to get into Dallas. It was uh, constructed in the 50s and was obsolete by the 60s. Uh, it was supposed to be this marvel of engineering and design, uh, probably the, the state-of-the-art high, city highway in the state of Texas. And uh, seriously, by the time it was in the 60s, it was, it was obsolete. It was only two lanes, you know, on each side. Uh, the, the number of cars in Dallas quickly outgrew the size. 
Uh, it built ramps that were too short, so you couldn't pick up speed to merge with the traffic. You literally had to merge with the traffic from a dead stop. Uh, and I had to, um, I actually had my first uh, car accident on Central Expressway. And it was right there, uh, pretty much, with that sign that says Park Lane and uh, Park Lane and uh, Highway Loop 12. It was just about right where that sign is where I had the first car wreck when I was 17. Uh, and I've had two of them actually on Central Expressway. Uh, in the 70s, they decided to reconstruct it and redesign it. And by the 90s, they finally finished it. And this is what it looks like today. And uh, it's much, much better. It still gets traffic at, at, in the morning and in the afternoon. And it still backs up. But uh, it's much better than it was. So now, if anybody were to ask me how to get into downtown Dallas, I would say you take Central Expressway. It takes you right into the heart of the city. And we all know that uh, to do a project like this, there takes a lot of planning somewhere in City Hall. There are people who with, with blueprints and designs and, and, uh, and, and arguing and money and resources, and they're trying to plan. And, and then it takes a long time once the construction has started to finish it. They set up pylons. They build uh, temporary roads and temporary off and on ramps around side there. And they build, put a lot of cones. And so try because life has to go on all this. Well, this is what I thought of when I was reading uh, Hebrews 9, believe it or not. Uh, because if somebody were to ask me how to get downtown, I would say take, take Central Expressway. Now, some of those roads that they built on the side uh, are still there. A lot of them have been demolished. And uh, some of them are still useful. But that's not really how you get downtown. And when you read, uh, read Hebrews 9, you've got to remember that we are, we are under the big umbrella of chapter 8 where he says, this is the new covenant. And he quotes Jeremiah 34, and he, and he quotes Jeremiah 34, and he says, in the new covenant, I will, I will put the law into their brains, into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. They will no longer teach each other. They will no longer say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant that he's talking about. So from here on out, he is talking about this thing, this new covenant. And what he's doing in chapter 9 is saying that God has planned this all along. God has designed this all along, but life goes on. And so while life goes on, he has installed this, the, the first covenant with the temple and the tent that we'll be talking about as a way of, of, of moving forward until the culmination, until the, the time has come to put things right, which is what he says in verse 10. He's saying there's two time periods. This, this, this time period now with the substitutes of the, of the tent and the sacrifices, but there is a time that will come when he will put things right. And he's saying that time has come with the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth. This new covenant has now been inaugurated. And so the, this is the first part of this chapter now. We're just looking at the 15 verses, but the first verses 1 through 10, he is talking a lot about the tent. Well, what is it all about this tent? Sometimes it gets confusing. People are talking about the tent, the tabernacle, and the temple. What's the difference? Well, the tabernacle was what, the design for the tabernacle is what God gave Moses when they came out of Egypt, when Israel came out of Egypt. And he says, this is the design 
And this is, he kind of pulled back the curtain, let, let Moses see what the heavenlies would look like. And this was a symbol of what the heavenlies looked like. It was always a representative. It was a parable. It was a picture, a word picture. So that's what he's got, uh, the, the tent. Now the temple came with Solomon, King Solomon, who, who David, of course, wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, you've got too much blood on your hands. And his son built it, Solomon. So the temple was designed on the same pattern as the tent. So they're kind of the same. So when the author's talking about the tabernacle, he's talking about the first kind of temporary thing that they had in the desert, which would make it appropriate if, in fact, he is talking to a group of Essenes who are trying to duplicate and replicate the life in the desert waiting for the Messiah to come. So this is what he's doing. He's talking about the tent, and he kind of summarized it in verse 1. And we'll just look at the passage here. Uh, the first section, the first par paragraph, he is talking about this time will come to set things right. And in verse 1 he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly sanctuary. And so he is going to describe what these earthly sanctuary and these regulations are. For example, first the, first the sanctuary, he kind of reverses it. For a tent was constructed, the first one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence, this is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies. And in it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides of gold, in which there were a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the, uh, the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Such preparations have been made, and the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. But only the high priest goes into the second, and he but once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself, and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. And by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. This is a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices were offered and cannot, be, be perf and cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. So what is he doing here talking about this tent? He's given this summary of what it is. And first he describes the, the earthly part. He describes the tent and all the things that are in it. And then like a teacher, you know, who, who kind of mentions a few things and would like to talk about them. And, and she thinks this is interesting, but can't because she's short of time. Well, the author is kind of the same thing. I'd love to talk about the urn and the, and the mercy seat and the, and, and, uh, the bud, the, the rod of Aaron and all these things and the cherubim. But I don't have time. I don't have the space. We need to move on. But he just wanted to go ahead and talk about all these utensils, all these furnishings, and emphasize that this is temporary. Although I would love to have heard his comments on the cherubim. On the cherubim. I would love to have heard his comments on the altar, on the mercy seat, but we don't have them. So he says, let's move on. And what he's saying is that there are two places, and in, in, the, in the first part of the tent, that's where many of the main activities took place. The hall of the sacrifices, and if it's the temple, it's the outer court. It's where kind of the normal people came. But then once a year, at this climatic moment, he says, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. 
and make a sacrifice for the atonement for all the sins. And he says, this is a, this is a, this is a, a revelation, a picture of what is in the heavenlies. You see, Israel was supposed to be the revelation of God. They were called to reveal God to the world. And I think we need to keep this in mind when we're talking about this long plan that God has to make the world right, to make things right. This is a long plan that he has, just like building a, reconstructing a highway. It takes a lot of planning and a lot of process. He has called Abraham out, and this turns out to be kind of a blessing and a curse. He has called Abraham out and said his family is the family that he's going to use to reveal myself, to reveal himself to the world through Israel. And so when people see Israel, they're going to be, this is what God is like. And he said, not only that, you will also reveal what people are like. And that's why this whole system is set in place, to reveal what God is like, that he takes sin seriously, and to reveal what people are like. And I'm really wondering if this is really the root of anti-Semitism, because we really don't know, want to know what God is like. And we don't really like it when we are revealed and exposed. And so what do we do? We take it out on the messenger. And I'm wondering if this is kind of a root of anti-Semitism here with the Jews who are called to reveal God. But he says the moment has come where he was revealed. He was revealed in Jesus Christ. All of this was temporary. All this was like the side roads that we still have on Central Expressway. Yeah, they're, they're there, but now we've, got the, now we've got a place that goes into the heart. We've got a place that goes into the core. And what I think the author is doing here, and we will talk about this at the end, but what I think he is doing here, he is saying that, that the new covenant not only forgives sins, it also demolishes the effects of sin. It obliterates the effects of sin. It's not just forgiveness. It's a change of course. It's a course correction. It's not just taking care of the outward manifestations of sin. It goes to the core and offers a course correction for humanity. It goes much, much deeper than that. We have mercy for the past, but we have a course correction for the future. It goes beyond just the external physical part that does every single year, every single day, and then every single year. That it's more than that. It goes to the core. Then we get to verse 11. This is probably one of the most consequential passages in all of Scripture. It has more impact than just about any other passage, and yet I think it's also the reason why the book of Hebrews is so ignored in our society today, in our churches today. Hardly anybody ever looks at it. Hardly anybody preaches from it. And I think it has to do with this passage, this shocking fulfillment in verses 11 through 15. So let's go ahead and read that part. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer sanctifies those who have been deified so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience, there's that phrase again, from dead works to the worship of the living God. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise inheritance, because of death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. This is one of the most consequential passages, I think, in the entire New Testament. Other people look at it and go, it's barbaric. It's primitive. It's bizarre. And they criticize it because, it's still, because, because blood makes us uncomfortable, right? We don't like to think about that. And so we don't we, we distance ourselves from this passage. They say it's too barbaric. Well, before we criticize a culture, a civilization for being too barbaric, let's look at us. More blood was shared, shed in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. Our wonderful Western civilization also enslaved an entire race of people. The Western civilization also committed the Holocaust. Uh, we look at abortion as a way, as a, as a form of birth control. Even after Sandy Hook, we have not figured out a way to protect our children and other people from mass shootings. In our wars, we use impersonal weapons like landmines and drones. We have nuclear warheads that could uh, obliterate the whole population of the earth a hundred times over. Uh, people say, well, what about these animal sacrifices? How bizarre is that? Well, you know, they consumed a lot of the, a lot of the sacrifices. That was for food. Some of them were burnt all the way up. That's true, but some of them, many of them were consumed for food. Here in this country, we slaughter 9.6 billion animals a year, a lot more than we need to survive. Now, I'm very happy to be on top of the food chain. Uh, I like being on top of the food chain. Um, I think maybe I could be a vegetarian if it wasn't for hamburgers and bratwurst. But for those two things alone, those two things alone make me not want to be a vegetarian. My point is not to make us all feel guilty. My point is, before we glance at another civilization, and make this hotty-totty declaration that they are bizarre and barbaric and primitive, we probably need to look at ourselves, and we need to understand what's going on here. Go and understand in, in Hebrews chapter 9. We have to remember that this book, these letters, the New Testament, we're reading other people's mail. It was written and preserved for us, but it was not written to us. This is written to a specific audience. So we need to understand what's going on here. And what he's saying is that this is a better home. This is a better covenant. Everything about it is better. When Sue and I first got married, we, we moved into this duplex in Irving. And uh, it was a great place. We, we had, you know, it was, it was perfect for us, a newlywed couple. It was just perfect. Uh, Katie was born. 
And so uh, about the time Katie was born, we got these new neighbors that moved on the other side. And these were the neighbors from hell. And <laughs> they, uh, they uh, while I was out of town, like on retreats and things like that, they, they um, uh, threatened and, uh, and uh, abused Sue and Katie and scared her while she was there uh, by herself. Uh, when we'd have Bible study for high school kids in our, in, our, in our duplex, they would put their speakers up against the wall and blare it to try to drown it out. Uh, they almost got into a fight with one of the parents of one of our high school kids. It was terrible. Well, a house came open about a half a block away, and we moved in. And it was so good. It was so nice. It was so wonderful. It was cozy. It was cute. It had a yard and uh, a place where, where this toddler could now go out and, and, and play. It was just wonderful. Well, that's what the Hebrew writer is saying here. He's saying, this is a better home. This is a better rest. rest. I want you to enjoy being part of the family of God through Jesus Christ. In spite of the cost, press on. He said, this is so much better. Why is it so much better? Because the home is better. And he said, because the sacrifice is better. And this is where we get the rub. The Messiah did not offer an animal who had no say in the manner, matter. He decided himself to offer himself. Nowhere in the Old Testament do they even make any kind of approval of human sacrifice. Much less, there would never occur to them that the priest would be both the offering and the offerer. But Jesus does this. And to understand it, we have to have a Trinitarian concept here. This is, no one ever thought, after seeing these pictures and this promise, that it would be God himself who would come a man and offer himself for this. What's the point of all these animal sacrifices? Well, one is for the people to be able to offer something to God. These animals represented themselves to God. They were, they were stand-ins for offering their lives to God. Another reason was to deal with sin. That the spilling out of blood meant that God takes sin seriously, not only for the individual, but for the family, for the, for the nation, for the people, for the community to survive. And we understand that, that we have to take this seriously. I have the right to drive a car, but I do not have a right to drive it drunk. We have laws that we have to, to because we live in a secular society. And these laws and these sacrifices all told Israel, this is serious. If you guys want to survive, if you guys want to thrive, you've got to take this seriously. It's not just little white lies here and there. We are talking about sin that takes, you need to take seriously. But the other reason, and I think the Hebrew writer draws this conclusion here, this analogy here, that I think we miss, that most of us, apart from the culture, miss it, is that these sacrifices were examples of God's self-giving love to them. He is giving himself. The animals are a stand-in for God's self-giving love to the people. 
Everything was sprinkled with blood. The utensils, the temple, the book itself, the people, everything. And I think what God's saying is, because of my self-giving love, you can't do anything. There are no loopholes here. You have to depend on me. There's no place for human pride here. And so I think we have to realize that this sacrifice is also God's self-giving to him. And he's borrowing that analogy that this sacrifice of the animals, he's, he's, it's this sacrifice of the Messiah is in line with those sacrifices. And yet, at the same time, it is so different, it's incomparable. That these were symbols of God's self-giving love, and now God himself is offering himself in this act of self-giving love. And this picture that we saw is a picture of the reality. And what we saw as a picture is now real is now happen. That the sacrifice of Jesus is about forgiveness of sins, but it's not just about forgiveness of sins. It is about transformation. It is about uh, touching us to the core, changing, giving us a course correction in our lives, as well as history and humanity, the history of humanity. This is something totally different. It reaches down in our core. It's not only mercy in the past, it is hope for the future. It reaches in our core. He uses the phrase twice. It perfects the conscience. And I think this is the key of understanding this passage. When we hear conscience in English, we think, oh, that's that, that little moral compass that makes us feel bad when we do something or don't do something right. And it can be something that makes us feel guilty, whether it's something serious, you know, like an abuse or something, or if it's something like, you know, uh, a lame excuse because I don't want to attend a birthday party, and we feel guilty about that. That's what we think of with conscious. But really, the idea here in the Greek word is more consciousness, our awareness, our inner core, it perfects our inner core. It is still our moral compass, but it, it's more than that. It is who we are. Forgiveness of sins and guilt, that has to do more with the fear of punishment. But this has to do with who we are. This has to do with shame. Shame fears rejection. Shame fears a loss of love. With guilt, we can kind of make it right. We can make amends. We can try to do it, make something right. But shame, it's who we are. And that makes it heavier. I can change my behavior for guilt, but I can't run away from shame. I can maybe run away or, or avoid somebody I feel guilty around and not, and not see them and avoid them when I see them in the grocery store and go to the other side. But shame, I can't run away because I can't run away from myself. I can share with you on Sunday mornings my own little failures and mistakes, and I'm okay with that. But I have things deep in here because that I will not say out loud in public. Why? Because I fear your rejection. I fear your loss of love. And that's what the gospel is getting down to. 
That's what the sacrifice of Christ means. Yes, it's forgiveness of sin, but it's more than that. It's a healing of this gaping hole in our heart, this shame that we don't want to expose to anyone. It is our moral compass. And it is the thing that guides us. It is the one that offers us a course correction for our lives completely. A lot of us have seen the Groundhog Day, the movie The Groundhog Day. If you haven't, you may know about it. Bill Murray plays this weatherman who has to go and report on the, the coming out of the Groundhog, you know, on Groundhog Day. And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's a great movie. Uh, he, he has to live the same day over and over and over and over again. And I think what, when, uh, when the author of Hebrews is talking about this course correction, this, this purifying of our, our consciousness and this time to set things right, He's saying you don't have to live that same day over and over and over again where there's sacrifices every day and every year you do this day of atonement. This is a once-for-all thing. Escaping Groundhog Day. So I'm just going to, some of my own kind of deductions from this passage. First of all, we are not saved by the death of Christ. We are saved by Christ himself. Why is that important? Here in the West, we have divided so much the life of Christ and the death of Christ. But it's the whole thing. Amen. It's the whole package of Jesus Christ that saves us, including the continuing ministry he has of interceding for us before the throne. It's all of it. It's all of this. That this is a, this is a different change of life. This is a transformation. That there is something profound that happened at Christmas and there's also something profound that happened on Good Friday, and there's something that profound that happened at Easter. It's the whole thing. It's the whole package. We are saved not just by the death of Christ. We are saved by Christ himself, God becoming man. That bridged the gap. That bridged the gap between humans and God. It bridged the gap between history and eternity. The whole thing of God becoming man, and we have to keep this Trinitarian idea in our head for this to understand this. I hear some people criticize, talk about this passage here, and they say, well, if, if the father did this to the son, well, I wouldn't even want to be his nephew, would you? We forget this is God becoming man. This is his self-giving love. Shame's power, which is the fear of exposure, is brought into the presence of God. We can be vulnerable in the presence of God thanks to the cross, thanks to the life of Christ. We can be vulnerable. We can bring our shame before him and have it healed. Shame's power, which is the fear of exposure and the fear of loss of love, is brought into the presence of God. We can bring our shame, and related to that, is God is revealed as the one who can be trusted to never abandon anyone. He will never abandon anyone. How do we know that? Because Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus enduring the shame of the cross, the shame of God himself being naked on the cross physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, being rejected by everyone he thought he loved, that he thought loved him, being betrayed by his friends, being rejected by the people he came to save, 
total humiliation. He cries on the cross, why have you abandoned me? But we know that, that, that the love of God even keeps the Trinity intact. That in the moment of shame could not rupture the relationship of the Trinity. And neither can it rupture our relationship with God either. We can bring our shame before him and he is revealed as the one who never abandons anyone because we've seen it. And finally, we are bookend, bookended in a personal love from beginning to end, from creation to the coming. Scientists tell us that the universe is expanding and it's continuing to expand but they don't ask the ultimate questions. Is there a goal? Is there a, is there a purpose for all this? And we can say, yes, there is a purpose, there is a goal. Because it began, creation began with very goodness. And we can trust that it will end with very goodness. Amen. That we are bookended by that. And the life of Christ shows us this. The blood of Christ shows us this. It's not just mercy in the past and mercy about our past. It is a course correction for the future. And it is bookended by love itself. If we don't believe this, then the only thing the church is, is just an enforcer of laws and requirements. But the church is different than that. The church is offers something different and better and reaches our core. It reaches our core with self-giving, sacrificial love from God himself. There are no barriers now between us and God. And one of the things about, I know this morning, it sounded really theological, but his purpose is not theological. He's talking to people who already know what he's talking about. His purpose is pastoral. He is trying to encourage them. He is saying there are no barriers between you and God now. He, he's trying to evoke emotions of gratitude and love. I think that there's probably not a clearer description of the gospel than this passage right here. I think it even beats Paul's description in Philippians of who Christ is. This is the message of the gospel, that the blood of Christ is a perfecting agent. It forgives forgives but it offers a course correction and now we look at the sacrificial love and we too are able to sacrifice and sacrificial love of others we just sang about that this morning that in the gospel of Christ there's no more weighing or counting we are simply bookended by a personal love of God uh, Therese the of Lisieux if I said that right I don't speak French she says, there is a science that God knows nothing about, and that's addition and subtraction. It's all grace. All grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And I...
never get tired of talking about your grace. Father, we give ourselves to you to change the course of our lives and teach us to love like you have loved. In the name of the Savior, amen.